wonderful to have you all back. I welcome you to the fifth meeting of our Hillary Turn Seminar, considering the political options following the Gaza War. For a while there, there was a debate on whether we were talking about a two-state solution or a binational state. 7th of October happened. It seems now the conversation is uniquely about creating a Palestinian state as part of resolving the conflict in an enduring way for the security of Israel, for the justice of Palestinian legitimate national aspirations. But there's a lot of diplomacy that will have to go into making that possibility a reality. It's easy to talk about recognizing Palestine and Palestinian statehood or a two-state solution. But for reasons that are obvious to every one of you in this audience, there are seemingly insurmountable barriers between saying those words and realizing that vision. But it's not an entirely new vision. And there have been those who have been active in the halls of power in Europe, in America, in the Middle East, who have been, against all the odds, working to try and keep the discussion about Palestinian statehood alive. I will credit the excellent ambassador, Alain for having brought that conversation first to our halls here at the Middle East Center at St. Anthony's College. And I must say that I found it incredibly provocative to have an Israeli <coughs> diplomat and former civil servant lecturing us on the imperative of recognizing Palestinian statehood. That novelty is yet to wear off, and it's a great pleasure to welcome Alamir back. He was, for years, the Director General of the Ministry of, Finance, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Israel before being appointed to serve his country as Chargé in <coughs> Turkey and as ambassador in the Republic of South Africa, where, by photographic evidence, he had the honor and pleasure of mingling with Nelson Mandela and those who were at the forefront of resolving the apartheid situation in South Africa. The experiences that he has had and his reflections will be shared in a forthcoming book in Hebrew, we're waiting for the English translation, examining Cyprus, Ireland, and South Africa with an eye towards the Israel-Palestine conflict. We will also be welcoming tonight Haitham Amire Fernandez. Haitham is a Jordanian-Spanish analyst, senior analyst of the Mediterranean and the Middle East at the Elcano Institute in Madrid where he also teaches international relations at the IE University in Madrid. In his work and in his analysis, he covers the region from the Maghrib through to the Gulf. We are particularly pleased to be welcoming Haitham, who will be able to shed light on the country that everyone has said has been at the forefront of European diplomacy since 7 October in advancing the goal of recognizing Palestinian statehood but a subject on which we've had precious little conversation in our press and, and discussions. And so to be able to get the insider's view from Madrid, we are delighted to have you with us tonight, Kaitam. And then, of course, Chris Doyle, who I had no idea that we so nearly overlapped in our time in, in post, but since 2002, he has been director of Kabu, the Center for the Advancement of Arab-British Understanding, based in London an influential think tank and meeting place for the policy world with the world of analysis. 
It is also where the Secretariat of the All-Palestine Group in Parliament is based, through which liaison Chris played a key role in helping to bring a vote to the uh, British Parliament in non-binding fashion, alas, on whether the House would move to recognize the state of Palestine. I won't spoil it for those of you who don't remember back to 2014 and leave to Chris to tell you that story in his own words. But what we have tonight is a panel who will be able to tell us not just about where the history of the diplomacy of recognizing Palestine to realize the ambition of two states to solve the Palestine-Israel conflict has originated, but where things stand today and where they are heading as we move forward. So will you please welcome our three panelists tonight, and I will yield the podium to our first speaker, the excellent Adolf Dieng. Thanks a lot. Great to be here again. I've been to San Antonio several times, but not in this hall. So, uh, wonderful hall. Um, I, I was a diplomat for about 30 years, and uh, over the years, especially the beginning of uh, this century, I started sensing that uh, the country is uh, changing to an extent that uh, I have a difficulty to represent it. And uh, the conflict uh, has deteriorated and the public has started to shift, as you know, to the right. And at a certain point, I left the ministry and uh, with a group of uh, retired ambassadors, we started uh, thinking uh, differently. Uh, we were very much uh, inspired by the British model of having a shadow government. And we created a small shadow foreign ministry without a budget. And uh, we, we started uh, thinking uh, together. And uh, as Israel uh, grew stronger and became richer and more uh, technologic uh, and gradually developing, this was before the 7th of October, to a regional power, uh, we realized that uh, countries, uh, individual countries are very reluctant to confront Israel. And the leaders of this century were usually uh, leaders who, I don't want to use the term selfish, but they took care of their public. They wanted employment, they wanted security, they wanted trade, and Israel became a strong country. Nobody wanted to pull with, with Israel. And we thought that we should go to the direction of recognition because all other avenues were blocked. Israel will not be sanctioned internationally and no European country will call the ambassador home and break relations with us. Nobody, nobody in Europe could afford it. And uh, we started fantasizing uh, over 10 years ago on a certain momentum of uh, 
countries in Western Europe, all the 27, 28 countries, no matter if it's in the EU or outside the EU, recognizing uh, Palestine because these were the countries that Israel really cared about. If uh, Pakistan is doing it, or, uh, or Indonesia, or Guatemala, but uh, if Western <coughs> Europe would do it, uh, especially if it will trigger uh, North American recognition, this will make a difference, and this is something that governments can do without Israel really having a say in this. And uh, it so happened that on the 30th of October 2014, almost 10 years ago, I opened the radio in Israel and Sweden recognized Palestine out of the blue. Why out of the blue? Because it was a, a very technical thing. The Labour Party won the elections. And in the platform of the Labour Party, it said that if we ever make it to power, we will recognize Palestine. So the new prime minister stood in front of the parliament and said, I don't have a choice. I promised it to the Swedish public. The Israeli response was like a, an eight earthquake, eight on Richter earthquake. <laughs> it was really unbelievable. Israel could not believe that a country in Europe having a good relations with us will do it. I remember that our foreign minister was a guy called Avigdor Lieberman. I don't know if you <laughs> heard the name. Uh, he was so furious that he went on TV and he called the Israeli public to boycott IKEA. And <laughs> <laughs> they immediately called our ambassador home and kicked out the Swedish ambassador and uh, it was unbelievable. We, we, we knew that this would be the reaction. Because, because Israel was really afraid of, of a momentum. And uh, uh, it so happened that less than two weeks later, I was invited to St. Anthony's College. <laughs> uh, uh, by the way, uh, it started in another college here. And they were very proud that they are the smallest college in Oxford, something with psychology. We had a, a discussion there, and your professor, Avi Schlein, <coughs> uh, said, come, let's have uh, breakfast together at the Old Parsonage Hotel. And we had breakfast. It was somewhere third week of September. And he's telling me, you know, there is a motion in our parliament to recognize Palestine. It doesn't have any chance. doesn't have any chance. But I'm telling you just for the record. Uh, I asked him, what should I do? How can I help? And he said, the guy from the small college is a lord. Uh, his name is, he hosted us in the small college. Excuse me, I don't remember the name. 
His name is John Alderdice. Lord John Alderdice. Go to him because he is, has a say in the Liberal Party. And tell him, tell him that, that, ask him if you can help. I came to Lord Alderdice and I told him, look, this is exciting because Sweden just did it. If in Britain it so happened that the parliament will vote, will call upon the government to recognize Palestine, it's sensational. He told me, I didn't know, I didn't know about such a motion. I'll check, let me check. I'll be back to you. And uh, two days later, I was visiting on a visit in Montenegro on one of the mountains. And he calls and he said, uh, yes, there is such a motion, and uh, you can help. I asked him, how can I help? He said, you just write a letter to the Liberal Party signed by 100 Israelis that you support it. Try to find names that are known in Europe. I was on a mountain, <laughs> and you know, it was by far taller than the tallest mountain we have in Israel. And uh, 10 years ago, these machines, they didn't work so well. <laughs> but I approached this group of uh, retired ambassadors, and I told them I need 100 signatures in a letter to the Liberal Party, and we need it within a day or two, because I think it was Wednesday, and the vote was Friday. It took them a day, or uh, a day and a half, and they signed, uh, they sent a letter to the Liberal Party signed by 324 Israelis. Among them, big names in Europe, mm -hmm. uh, authors like Amos Oz, uh, David Grossman, and, uh, and others' names like uh, Yossi Sarid, if you know. And uh, this guy, he couldn't believe it that from on the mountain I could arrange such a thing. And he said, this is very helpful. <coughs> and immediately he told me, look, the Liberal Party will support it, but the, the government, it was a conservative government, they would be against. It doesn't have any chance, it doesn't have any chance. But uh, I came back to Israel. We worked on it like mad. And uh, the, the vote, it was an overwhelming, with an overwhelming majority. Don't catch me, I think it was 214 to 10. The, the conservatives didn't vote, and it was an unbelievable shock in Israel that the British parliament is calling upon the British government to recognize Palestine. We were thrilled, I mean, it was, it was, so fast, and uh, what we decided to do, we decided to approach uh, another 15 uh, West European governments. The East Europeans were not relevant because all the East Europeans recognized Palestine back in 1988 mm -hmm. because they were communists then. So they were not relevant. And, uh, so we, we started approaching one Parliament after the other, uh, the petition grew and we stopped at 1,000. And uh, with our humble machine, 
we send this petition to every member of parliament in every West European country. I think somebody can Google and check. The British decision was at the end of September. Uh, October, November, December, 12 European parliaments called upon the governments to recognize Palestine. Different wordings, the most uh, uh, the strongest wording was the Irish one, uh, and I think it was unanimous in Ireland. In other parliaments, the, the language was uh, softer, but 12, 12 parliaments, uh, unbelievable momentum. And every week, sometimes twice a week, you headline in Israel. Uh, Italy did it, and France did it. And Spain did it, and, and the Israeli public was taken by surprise. We had three or four that were left to January and February. <coughs> and you know, there is this uh, Christmas uh, pause on the 5th of January 2015, there was the big ISIS terror attack in Paris and the whole world gathered in Paris a demonstration against ISIS. When we came back to the few parliaments that didn't do it, uh, there was nobody to talk about because Netanyahu, in a, in a brilliant move, he connected, he tied uh, Hamas with ISIS, he tied the Palestinians with ISIS, and, and when we came after mid-January here to Europe, there was nobody really we could talk to. And it, it disappeared. The momentum disappeared a lot because of ISIS. ISIS was the, the devil in Europe, and nobody was uh, ready to think on any favor to any Muslim uh, country or nation or people. And, uh, and then 10 years passed. And it was gone. It was gone. The recognition was gone, and the two states was gone. And we started working on different things until the morning, <coughs> 6.30 AM on the 7th of October. Uh, I don't have to tell you stories. You, you live these stories in the last four months, but I was uh, among the Israelis, all of us, that jumped Saturday morning from the bed with the alarms, and we were sure it's a mistake that there was a, and after a few hours we saw the magnitude of it. And the Israeli-Palestinian conflict came back to the agenda, to the international agenda. We were speaking earlier, and I think if uh, there is here a PhD student that can make a content analysis on how often was the term two states mentioned uh, until the 7th of October, or since, you would see that, that it's back, it's back in town, it's, it's the top of the town. Biden is speaking about it, and the uh, Lord Cameron is speaking about it, and uh, was speaking about it in uh, 
Belgium and in Spain, uh, we will, you will hear soon. And uh, we that were living through this momentum of September to December 2014, with our experience and a lot of white hair, we see <coughs> a new moment, a new momentum. And the big difference this time is that it's a different Israel. Israel was uh, arrogant, uh, full of itself, overconfident, and uh, this is the, the reflection all over the world. You don't deal with Israel. Israel is too strong. Just, uh, and the Palestinians are nothing. What can we gain from the Palestinians? <laughs> this was not only the atmosphere of Europe, it was our, the atmosphere of the Middle East. You saw the Abraham Accords, and everybody wanted to be a friend of Israel. And Israel of today is different. Israel of today, uh, although we, our prime minister is still uh, full of himself and uh, <coughs> speaking on uh, eliminating Hamas and so on, uh, Israel is very vulnerable now, very vulnerable. Uh, the, the, this war was uh, an unbelievable blow to the Israeli public, discovering the weakness of our army, the weakness of our intelligence, and the abilities of the Palestinians. We were totally unprepared, but the implications are far beyond uh, the military and the casualties and, and so on. The implications are on our economy. You have uh, just seen that, I don't know if you heard about it here, that Moody's downgraded the rating of the Israeli economy. And, and international uh, pressure now, especially what I call the positive pressure. I see recognition as a positive move, not sanctions. I don't think any country in Europe will really apply economic sanctions. We saw today a, a move of the Netherlands and so on on the military. <coughs> but generally speaking, the United States will not boycott Israel and Britain will not boycott Israel. Now, in the beginning, on on the settlers, but, but recognizing Palestine, if we would have such a momentum now, not by parliament, by governments, by governments, starting on the national level and building a momentum that will move to the UN, and in the UN have the recognition of Palestine as a member state, not as a state, because Palestine is already recognized as a state, but a non-member state. If this will happen, it's a new ballgame. It's a new ballgame. Uh, Eugene mentioned that I have a book coming out and the big lesson from Ireland was parity of esteem. Parity of esteem. Nobody in Israel heard such a thing, about such a thing. And if we would have the two countries, Israel and Palestine, having the same status in uh, the UN, uh, it's a new ball game. <coughs> Eugene didn't give me more time. And uh, I'll finish here. I'll be very glad to have more questions. Thank you. Thank you a lot.
would like to call to the podium, Haitham Amide Fernandez. Thank you. To update us on where things stand now in this moment yes. in Europe. Okay, well, hello everyone. <laughs> Thank you uh, very much, uh, uh, Dr. Rogan, for the invitation. And uh, thanks all of you for being here. Uh, uh, great being uh, with this group of interesting speakers on the panel. So um, I guess I'm here, as Professor Rogan explained, because I come from Spain. And Spain has been credited as being at the forefront of calling for recognition of the state of Palestine since October 7th. I have to tell you something. That's not totally true. The only reason why Spain is seen as a country at the forefront is because the Israeli government made it publicly and its goal its objective to attack the Spanish prime minister for what he dared to say in late November. Not because he said something new, or even because he did something really different. Not much has been done, that's why to say. Some statements, some you know, important symbolic moves. But no recognition yet. No sanctions. No nothing that is outside of the EU box. So the fact that uh, Israeli Prime Minister and his Foreign Affairs Minister decided to recall the Israeli ambassador from Madrid and made a big fuss of what Spanish Prime Minister, together with the Belgian Prime Minister, was next to him. But I guess not too many people remember that the Belgian Prime Minister was present, uh, is what uh, basically brought me here today to be with you. Let me tell you a little bit of what the Spanish government has said and done uh, over the past four months. But before that, let me give you a little bit of uh, background of the diplomatic relations that uh, the Kingdom of Spain has had with both the State of Israel and Palestine uh, in modern times. And that will start in 1986. That is, once Spain became a democracy, it was about to join the European community, and in 1986, talking about recognitions, Spain recognized the state of Israel. It was a latecomer uh, in the European continent. 1986, the recognition happened under a socialist government, led by Felipe González. So it was a leftist government that decided against the traditional Spanish position of having close relations with the Arab countries to recognize the state of Israel. That allowed Spain to be the Spanish capital, Madrid, to host the Madrid Peace Conference in 1991, five years after it recognized Israel. It was viewed as a country that, you know, for all the different actors in the region, was neutral enough, friendly enough, and at the time when uh, US President uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush father, uh, you know, called the Spanish Prime Minister and told him, I'd like to hold an international peace conference on the Middle East in two weeks. <laughs> Can you please, please, please arrange for um, that summit? And I think James Baker was involved there, you know, his diplomacy, etc. So it took place in Madrid. That's why it's called the Madrid process. The peace process when it uh, was launched was in Madrid. Just to give you a little bit of, of history of where Spain is in all this. That was still under a socialist government in Spain. In 2012, 
It was no longer a socialist government, it was a conservative, a People's Party government. In 2012, Spain joined other EU member states in voting in favor of the recognition of Palestine as a non-member observer state, granting it that status, non-permanent, sorry, non-member observer state at the United Nations. It was not a recognition of statehood, but in a way, when you recognize state, well, there's something about it. That was under the Conservative Party. The same Conservative Party that in 2014, following another round of violence in Gaza, decided to place a temporary ban on a weapons export to Israel. It's not that Spain was exporting really a lot of weapons. It was more symbolic measure. For some months, Spain made it public that it was not exporting weapons to Israel, 2014. That same year, in the month of November, as Alon just mentioned, the Spanish parliament was one of those who joined that momentum in Europe. And there was, it was not a unanimous vote. I think there were two MPs who, for some reason, voted against. But all the rest of Spanish MPs, of all the different political parties represented in parliament, voted in favor of a non-binding motion asking the Spanish government to recognize the state of Palestine in 2014. One year later, there was a different recognition in 2015. Uh, the recognition of the rights of Sephardic Jews to get Spanish citizenship. That was a law passed by the Spanish parliament. I think it was a unanimous vote at the time. Uh, there were certain conditions that needed to be met, but those Jews who could prove that they had origins and roots in Spain, in Sephard, that's why they were called Sephardim or Sephardic, Jews could access the Spanish citizenship without relinquishing their citizenship, whatever they have at the time. <coughs> there was no public opinion rejection of that law. This is also to give uh, you know, an idea of Spain reconciling, you know, sometimes difficulties, with its past and with history going back centuries ago. And let's jump to the past four months, um, 2023. Uh, following the attacks on Israel on uh, October 7th, the EU did not manage to come up with a common position for a, a week. One would say the EU is slow, it takes time, it's the bureaucracy, the machinery. In a situation like that, a week is a lot especially when you have different EU representatives starting to do their own, not common position, but sometimes personal position, you know, individually. I'm thinking of the president of the commission, of, uh, you know, the EU parliament as well, and the cacophony that was coming out of Brussels. Uh, it was the Spanish presidency of the EU, the, you know, the semester of Spanish presidency, and convened uh, a council, uh, European, I mean, Foreign Affairs Council to, no, actually it was European Council, on the 15th, eight, eight days after the attack, to come up with a European common position, EU common position. It was not really much of a common position, it was just the minimum, asking for, you know, whatever, a few things, not even ceasefire or humanitarian uh, pauses, it was, you know, the wording was a bit difficult to say, pushed a lot, and this is, I think, where it started to emerge like, uh, forefront of, of uh, you know, European countries doing something different 
and not following what the Germans want the rest of EU member states to do. And I will talk a little bit about Germany and some other EU member states, four of them, uh, uh, that have been, you know, I guess, blocking uh, a more uh, forceful EU position. So on November 24th, the Spanish Prime Minister went to Israel, visited Israel, met with the President, met with the Prime Minister, and in public uh, made several statements uh, asking for the immediate release of all the Israeli hostages in the hands of Hamas and the other uh, Palestinian groups, something that the government has been repeating again and again. And uh, talking about Israel's legitimate right to self-defense when being attacked uh, in a terrorist way, but also telling Netanyahu that the right to self-defense not, does not allow for collective punishment, and that international humanitarian law had to be respected, and that massive uh, retaliation was not uh, uh, respecting international humanitarian law. And he said the same thing at the Rafah crossing on the Egyptian side, together with the Belgian uh, Prime Minister next to him. And that is what led the Netanyahu government to go mm, very angrily against him. Let me give you a few ideas to try to explain to you this attitudes that exist in Spain towards Israel and Palestine. Obviously, there's a lot of history. You know, history to go back centuries, um, relations uh, with uh, the immediate Mediterranean uh, neighborhood, with Arab countries under the Franco dictatorship when Spain had difficulties joining uh, the United Nations because there were sanctions or there were countries that were not willing Spain to join the, uh, the UN. Some newly born Arab states, newly independent Arab states, uh, also brought their vote in favor of Spain joining the, uh, the UN. So that's a little bit of, you know, decades ago. But in the Spanish public opinion, in Spanish society, there's a strong feeling towards the right of self-determination. It is very present. Right and left. Uh, self-determination of the Palestinians. Uh, having been under a dictatorship, having been isolated, I think also counted so in, in a way in uh, viewing this right for self-determination for the Palestinians. Uh, when extremist groups in Palestine act, we see that the reaction in some European societies tends to mix those groups with the Palestinians, or at least at public opinion levels. In Spain, I think we have a very vivid memory of homegrown terrorism terrorism of ETA, ETA, uh, in the Basque country, and how Spaniards managed to come to the conclusion that ETA is not the Basques. That was a slogan that defeated ETA in a way. Bascos si, ETA no. Yes to Basques, no to ETA. So I think that differentiation between what Hamas or other Palestinian groups do and what the Palestinians as a people are, that is very present in the psyche of the Spaniards because of the experience and the trauma that the country has gone through. Uh, also, I mean, can we say that Spanish public opinion is pro or anti-pro-Palestinian, anti-Israeli, or vice versa? It, it, it's more 
difficult at task. I gave you some examples to, to show why that is the case. What has happened since October 7th at the European level, at the EU level? Well, you've all seen Profo profound divisions. Profound divisions when it comes to the messaging, the you know, positioning, uh, voting uh, at the United Nations General Assembly. The EU was able to come with a common position, unlike with the war in Ukraine. It had its member states had three different positions. Some voted in favor for a resolution asking for immediate humanitarian ceasefire with you know lease of hostages, etc. Others abstained, like uh, well, maybe they didn't think that conditions were right. And uh, some EU member states voted in, against that resolution. The division was profound. And also, the EU has been unable to uh, formulate a policy to ask for a ceasefire, or even to sanction settlers, extremist settlers, in uh, the West Bank that are attacking Palestinians. Which is shocking. I mean, when you look at the Biden administration that has already placed some sanctions on a number of those settlers, the EU, as of today, has not been able to do the same thing. So, what did the Spanish Prime Minister do? I think he was a bit uh, early in his statements that he made at the time, it was still October and November, <coughs> and he made those statements before others followed him. I don't know if it was, if it was because of you know, political, um, I don't know, how, he had like the sense that this is where we're gonna be heading, so I'm you know, ahead of the curve. But what he said is what others are repeating today. The recognition of the Palestinian state, solution based on not a peace process, but a two-state process, and uh, that way trying to break with the cycle of occupation, of resistance, of terrorism, of collective punishment, and realizing that the risk of having a regional conflagration, a regional war in the Middle East, would be too high and too costly and too dangerous for the EU. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something that, uh, as of today, the EU High Representative uh, for Foreign and Security Policy, Mr. Josep Borrell, who happens to be Spaniard as well. He is one of the vocal voices in Brussels, I think one of the, I would say, wise voices in Brussels, who is seeing that the risk is real, the risk is high. The escalation needs to take place immediately. The human cost, not only you know, the human cost and the reputational cost for the EU, that at the same time it's talking about Ukraine and the right of Ukrainians to defend themselves against aggression, humanitarian law, etc., etc., while next door, around the Mediterranean, the same neighborhood that you know Spain belongs to, something terrible is happening and it's undermining uh, the EU and the international rules-based uh, order. So I'll leave it here and maybe we can continue. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we hand over to Chris Doyle. Thank you very much. And it's a huge this, this pleasure to be here at St. Anthony's and to follow uh, both Elon and Hyphen uh, on this. You know, when 
we talk about recognition, it reminds me of so many debates and discussions over the years. In fact, I first started in Kabul in 1993, just before the Oslo process in my first stint. And we got a call. And it was early September, and uh, the person didn't identify themselves and said, listen, we've had a request from the Daily Mail. They want to know how many countries, how many states have recognized the PLO. And, you know, I was, I was young then, and uh, I, I sort of said, I think it's about 100 and whatever, you know, the figure was, but I'm not really sure. I asked my colleague, and I said, well, listen, I think you really ought to ring the PLO office in Clareville Grove. We are the PLO office. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I, I go back some time on, on this issue. But in, in terms of time, it does feel, we talk about recognition now, boy, doesn't it feel late. Doesn't, isn't it incredible that actually there is even now a discussion about possible recognition without any commitment, without anybody actually saying we're definitely going to do it. At the moment, the Palestinians are asking in Gaza whether they will survive the month. That is really the story of this. That is the context in which we're talking about. The lack of courage is quite shocking. Because recognition should never have been some punishment for Israeli poor behavior. It should never have been something to bash an Israeli government with. It should have been something to push forward Palestinian politics and their legitimate quest for self-determination. So is it too late as we look as Gaza's, the Gaza Strip Gaza has always played a fundamental role in Palestinian politics. Is it about to be so smashed, so destroyed, that actually it won't be able to be part of a future Palestinian state should it come into being? We're looking at a situation, you know the fatality counts, 28,000. We're now well over 12,000 children having been killed. 70% of the victims are when in children, 60% of the buildings have been destroyed or damaged. Only 13 out of 36 hospitals are even partially operational. Primary health care centers destroyed. What is there left? If, ladies and gentlemen, tomorrow we were able to get that magical ceasefire, the C word that everyone's been refusing to call for, it would take years to restore Gaza, not just to be, I mean, forget being livable, just to be just safe. The water supplies, the sewage. That's the context in which this debate is sort of rather nervously going forward in Westminster. Let's be clear that we are asking for a very small measure in terms of the context. And that's before we get to the West Bank. The West Bank, which of course would be the larger part of such a state, one assumes, over 700,000 settlers. It's tripled since the days of Oslo when I took that phone call from the PLO office. All over the West Bank, not just close to the Green Line, 
And you have areas A, B, C, H1, H2, scene zone, nature zones, military reserves, firing zones. And somehow this is all going to be unraveled to create what should be a viable, credible, independent, sovereign Palestinian state. Well, that's, that's the context in, in, in which we're dealing with. And if we can't get our politicians to do that right now, uh, it's lamentable. And we're late also. Today, you may have heard that Britain has sanctioned four settlers. It's very much the same number as the United States did, though, you know, little baby steps of accountability here. But quite frankly, you could go back decades and give examples of where Israeli settlers could have been sanctioned. I'm sure Alon, you know, will agree. Remember uh, Moshe Levenger in, in Hebron and his wife and, uh, you know, and others who have committed outrageous acts of violence to push Palestinian communities off their land. So it's only now, right at this sort of last point, perhaps, that we're actually going to take some minor action. Forgive me, but I think if you went to Israeli human rights organizations, other groups, you could identify a huge number of Israeli settlers who had perpetrated such acts of violence. And where are the actions against those groups that actually organize this? Where you see, I mean, you see pogroms. This time, if you went back for, uh, 14 months ago, there was a pogrom at Hawara outside Nablus. One in Hebron, too. I turned up the day after, saw the results, where settlers had been led in by the army with the complicity of the Israeli army, the assistance of the Israeli army into the uh, Palestinian-controlled area, H1, yeah. and they ran amok. So this is all we're thinking about doing now. I would say, though, to point out that the executive order of President Biden does allow for some considerable action against such groups. And I hope that they will actually in the United States consider going forward with that. And if we have to wait for the United States to then do it, so be it. So why, why, why haven't, why are we so reluctant? Why is there reluctance to do this? As Eugene said, um, we do a lot of work with members of parliament uh, I have a former member of parliament in the, in the audience, and we take delegations out there. And I actually took uh, Graham Morris, who introduced that vote in the House of Commons out to the, to the West Bank. And we had a, had a delegation, and I remember discussing it. And one reason I remember is because we've been out on a long journey visiting various communities that have been under threat from settlers around Nablus. We got a call later in the day and said, would you, the delegation, please come and visit Mokata and the memorial to Yasser Arafat? And we were pretty exhausted. Been a long day. And because we'd been out on, you know, very much visiting these communities, we weren't wearing suits or jackets, so we weren't appropriately dressed. So we, we, did, we did decide we had to go there. 
but one of the MPs was wearing a sort of bright blue and white shell suit. And so, of course, photographers turned up. The British delegation, we sort of put on reasonable, probably something similar to what I'm wearing now, and he's wearing this blue and white shell suit. But at the time, they hadn't realised that Arafat wasn't recognised by the Israelis as president. So it comes up, well, they don't. He's chairman Arafat, the Israelis. We had this discussion. And actually triggered the discussion about recognition and statehood. And so if Graham did put forward that debate, it was 274 to 12 um, at the time. Largely, those figures are slightly misleading because a, a, a huge number abstained you know, at the time. But it was an indication of a considerable amount of parliamentary support. I remember actually the morning of that day that we had some Palestinians in the office who refused to believe me when I said, we're going to win that vote. They thought that was just not going to happen. Come on. They looked at me as if I was mad. I said, no, no, it's going to be won. It's not, going to, it's not binding. It's not going to change things, but we'll win the vote <clears throat> quite handsomely. There has always been actually quite a lot of backbench support for recognition. <coughs> so it begs the question, why not? It is the lack of courage. It's the lack of courage to stand up to a very assertive Israel, one that is prepared to hit back, one that is prepared to push back. And we have to have a political system and leadership who's prepared to say, no, we are going to do this. And that's what we've lacked. Let's be, it's the lack of that political will. There is a Palestinian element to this, of course, as well. It would be, I think, easier to push such an agenda if there was a more coherent Palestinian leadership. The division between Hamas and Fatah, of course, has not made it easier. The lack of credibility of the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah also. But since 2011, William Hague made clear at the time that Palestine qualified as a state. It had all the ingredients of a state. And in many ways, it actually has many of the characteristics of state that other countries that are recognized perhaps don't. <coughs> and you don't recognize a specific government. You don't endorse it. You don't say, we like this government. You're recognizing statehood. It's not about saying, we like the PA more than Hamas or anything like that. And of course, it would be a state under occupation. The Israeli argument is right. They'd still be under occupation the day after, but you would get to the parity of esteem that you mentioned. It would be nice to have some esteem for Palestinian rights, to be honest. But a parity of esteem is important. And when they come to negotiations, I mean, in theory, you have to own the occupation first, but in this conflict, things don't go according to what should happen. Um, and that's for very obvious reasons. An occupier shouldn't be allowed to negotiate with an occupied party because it has the dominant hand and can dictate terms. Briefly, going forward, what, what can we expect? Unless the international community, such as it is, starts taking very serious action, and I mean almost this week, I think all of these options are going to look very remote. Personally, in my view, I don't know if Elon agrees, I think Netanyahu needs the crisis to continue. I don't believe he's going to sign any ceasefire deal, there won't be a signature. He's not going to back one with Hamas 
It's not in his own personal or political interest. If anything, he wouldn't mind the whole thing spreading to the West Bank even more severely than it is at the moment. You keep the crisis going, you don't change the leader in the middle of the crisis, the whole thing carries on, Netanyahu may be able to stay in office. I don't think he has any desire to, I think he wants to work out a way to go into reference. And he certainly has no desire to see a Palestinian state. Everything that he has done in the right wing of Likud is to prevent this coming out the split between Hamas and Fatah. Even the withdrawal out of Gaza in 2005 was about facilitating this split in Palestinian politics to undermine the Palestinian national movement. If we are serious, moving forward, we have to reinvigorate the Palestinian national movement. We have to demonstrate that those prepared to use a non-violent path can achieve credible gains, those prepared to negotiate can achieve uh, their freedom, and that those who wish to use violence aren't going to achieve it. At the moment, our, our policies are playing into the likes of Hamas. It's extraordinary. They're getting more popular, more funding, more credibility, whether we like it or not. And I'm not sure that's understood in Westminster. I'm not sure it's understood how much of our reputation, such as it is, has been utterly damaged by this across the world. The double standards involved, our failure to do more. <coughs> South America, rest of Asia, Africa are looking at us and saying, don't ever come to us ever again if we talk about international law and human rights. And that's something we should all be very concerned about. <coughs> So recognition is just but one of the things that needs to happen in order to correct that. And I'm not saying at this stage, just to finish on this point, that that necessarily means the two-state solution is my blueprint for, for resolving this conflict. It's not for me to put that out there. But recognition is a way, at least, that Britain can say we recognise Palestinian self-determination, we give it meaning. How the two parties decide to live with each other is, is for them, but they're obviously ingredients that are absolutely essential, like ending that occupation before you can get there. Thank you very much. Okay, panelists, we're going to take the questions here from the table, so you're not getting up and going to the podium each time we get a question. Before I launch into questions, I should have said from the outset, that this is a doubly special seminar tonight because unusually for St. Anthony's it brings two centers together and particularly in our contact with you, Heidi, we're very grateful to our colleagues from the European Studies Center who are the joint hosts. I saw colleagues from the European Studies Center filtering into the, it's like, nice to see you guys here, but of course it's a joint seminar. So let me recognize that one right now and thank them for their help in bringing this together. I, I, I'm going to prompt Heitham and, um, and Chris to say just a little bit more on where things are going. Chris, you were actually at the reception hosted by the Conservative Middle East Council when Lord Cameron made his surprise announcement that Britain actually was looking to recognize Palestinian statehood as part of 
a post-conflict uh, Gaza and Palestine situation. And very shortly after that, we saw the White House making a very similar statement. So if you could share with us you know, what the mood was like when Cameron actually made that announcement and whether you think that that reflects a concerted effort bringing Britain and America together. And before you answer, I think really it's whether there is momentum building between Spain and other countries in the EU to try and take a kind of vanguard role while you, you talk about an EU that's come up with a sort of divided three ways <laughs> in its voting so far, at least in the Security Council. You know, is there something meaningful coming from Spanish diplomacy with other like-minded countries that might be creating a momentum in Europe such as what Alan was talking about had been the norm in, in 2014? So could I ask you two to address that and then I promise, guys, the questions are yours. Yes, I, I was in, in the room when Cameron made this address. I, a few comments. Firstly, I thought he was genuine. I think he, he did say at the time, we want to see the fighting end now. He gave a special <coughs> emphasis to that, and I think you know, he was serious. The government's position has transitioned to one now. Instead of sort of calling for pauses, it is a pause leading to a seamless, credible, sustainable ceasefire, which is almost as good as saying an immediate ceasefire. Uh, they just can't come out and, and say it. On the issue of statehood, he didn't say we're going to recognize, but he said we, they reserved the right to do it, and they would do it um, very much not at the end of the process, but in the middle of it. So in other words, it would be done in order to actually encourage things forward, not as at the last step. It, it was a very nuanced change in emphasis as much as anything. And he also made it very clear that Israel would not have a veto over this. And that therefore it's a British decision. Um, it is one that could be taken at any time. In terms of actual substance and in, in, in what he said, it's not, it wasn't a huge change, but actually it hadn't been said by a foreign secretary in, in, in a while. Um, and he made it, I think, pretty obvious that it wasn't beyond the bounds of possibility that Britain could go down this path in the not too distant future. And I think that everyone in the room could read the signs that, you know, Israel be aware, you know, this is, you know, within our power to do and we might do it. And the see the United States has made known that this is one of the things that they're looking at. Um, now, are they going to move it any further? Have we heard anything more since? Not a, not a great deal. But I would say that what is key is these leaders, I think, are now... They haven't criticized what Israel's done in Gaza. But they don't want to go back to a situation of another war in Gaza. This is the sixth major Israeli war in Gaza since 2006. They don't want to go back there. And in order not to go back there, they understand there's got to be a potential solution on the table. And the only one they can coalesce around is a two-state solution, which would require the recognition of a Palestinian state. And the only time we push back against the Israeli government is when Netanyahu said, or the Israeli ambassador said, we're never going to allow a Palestinian state. And then they're criticized. 
And that's, I think, the context in which the visa bans on settlers, the sanctions on settlers have come about, is to say, don't think you can block status because we are going to push back very hard on that, fairly hard. Yes, um, so uh, there is an EU momentum on recognition. Okay, so from what uh, I know, the Spanish government, Spanish officials are talking with other like-minded European governments, trying to um, think of the, a good timing, maybe not the best timing, but a good, a good timing to make a difference. Clearly what's going on today makes it very difficult to just, you know, make a statement, we recognize the state of Palestine as if that's going to solve the monstrosities that we're seeing today. Um, I think some European countries are waiting for signals from Washington. Uh, so the fact that now there is more and more talk about uh, the Biden administration considering the recognition of the statehood for Palestine, that will make some countries, especially Germany, always Germany, uh, you know, consider that maybe that's a good idea. Uh, today, there was a statement by the high representative, the EU high representative for uh, foreign security policy, um, suggesting the need for an arms embargo against Israel. Uh, so that is, obviously, he doesn't have the power to make the 27 Euro EU governments follow or, you know, uh, ex uh, impose that uh, arms embargo, but the fact that he's already speaking about that, uh, the Germans are unhappy, the Austrians, the Czechs, and the Hungarians don't like at all what Mr. Borrell is saying. But, uh, you know, if Washington, you know, starts moving in a different direction, that could make a difference. I think coordination between EU, some EU governments, like the Spanish government, with Arab governments, and this is something you know, I was mentioning this earlier to Chris, the level of coordination among some Arab governments and even from Muslim countries, non-Arabs, is something that we are not used to seeing, those of us who follow and uh, study the region. We have seen that uh, weeks after October 7th, there was a summit of the Arab League and the Organization of Islamic uh, co uh, Cooperation that was convened in uh, Riyadh, uh, with uh, almost all heads of state showing up. Mm -mm. The Iranian was there, and uh, everyone was there, and they uh, issued a final statement, in which, by the way, they talked about the two-state solution. Mm -hmm. So the Iranians need to be asked, you know, uh, what, you know, th there's something about two-state solution. Iran also signed that statement. Um, and today there's a meeting in Washington, uh, President Biden, uh, will uh, be hosting King Abdullah of Jordan, who is carrying a message from the Arab group to Washington. <laughs> Arab countries, they all, you know, you all know, they have their own calculations, interests, but all of them have seen that things have gone too far. The risk for the entire region, the risk of escalation of a regional war, the risk of the Netanyahu government deciding to expand, you know, operations beyond the West Bank, uh, uh, and also domestic stability. We're talking about Jordan. I mean, uh, stability for Jordan. Uh, what if there's a force transferred of Palestinians from Gaza into Rafah, uh, through Rafah into the Sinai, or from the West Bank into Jordan? 
the Jordanian government has talked about a declaration of war if that happens. The Egyptians are talking about red lines and other things. So just to conclude, um, I think the, on the issue of recognition, we have to look also at the signals coming from the region itself. There was a Saudi statement from the Saudi foreign ministry uh, three days ago in which the Saudi government was telling the three permanent UN uh, Security Council members that have not recognized Palestine yet, that is the US, UK, and France, that in the absence of a recognition of Palestinian state, the borders of 67 with East Jerusalem as a capital, in the absence of an end of uh, the aggression in Gaza and withdrawal of all forces from Gaza, there will be no normalization between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Israel. So the sequencing now is turned upside down. It's not the Abraham Accords one-on-one, like single recognitions, it's the other way around. We work on Palestine, then recognitions will come and normalization, and Israel will, be, will become a normal country in its neighborhood. That's the point, is achieving normalization requires all states to be normal. To have normal status, you must have recognized boundaries. Which is not the case. Which is not the case. And so, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's not a punishment. It's just using diplomatic terms in their full meaning, normalization. Yeah, but this didn't exist before the, sixth, before the 7th of October. They were about to sign. I know. 